the, the illumination of your Holy Spirit, the understanding of Scripture that he can give to our hearts, and then that we wouldn't just simply have an understanding in our minds, but that we'll take heed to it, that we'll live it as best of our ability, and Lord, where we're not able to, where we're uh, so frail, so weak in the flesh, I pray that you would strengthen and bear us up so that we can become more of what you would want us to be. Bless all that we say and do today. And Lord, above all, we want to glorify you and lift you up and bring uh, our eyes and our focus, our gaze upon you today as we set aside this day uh, to just think on you, to spend time with you, and uh, to walk with you today. I pray that you would guide and direct our steps. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Psalm 14, if you will, Psalm 14. <coughs> this psalm <clears throat> was written to the chief musician. Uh, it is one of the psalms that is attributed specifically to David. They know that he's uh, the author of it. The chief musician was the one that was responsible for leading of worship in the tabernacle and then later on uh, in the temple. And uh, this particular psalm is, uh, there are some psalms that are, um, they're private psalms. They're psalms that individuals were able to sing and to be a help and a blessing to them. This is a psalm that was intended for public worship. It was made for uh, congregations to sing, um, choirs that were uh, there. It was made to, uh, to be a a psalm that was sung um, together as an act of public worship. Um, there's a, a twin or a, a, another psalm that parallels this one, and that is Psalm 53. And uh, somebody wrote uh, this about it. They said, uh, being moved of the Holy Ghost, thus doubly to declare a truth which is ever distasteful to the carnal mind. And I thought, well, what a, what a great way to word this that there are times that God puts things in Scripture two times or three times even, sometimes four times. And you often wonder, well, you know, he, he wasn't just trying to fill up a book like we used to do in English class when we had a term paper to write. Every word in here is something God intends it to be. And I've never really thought of it the way this guy worded it, but the idea that because of our carnality of our hearts, we are so needful to be reminded and to have it reinforced and reiterated and for the focus and the importance that God places on such a thing uh, to be uh, repeated to us again and, and brought to our hearts and minds again. And there's a lot of truth in that. And as we look at this psalm, you're going to see uh, that David makes the observation that uh, we're all carnal. Uh, we all have that flesh nature. And yet we find as we get to the end of this psalm that there's a glorious prayer said at the very end of it uh, that ought to be the prayer of each of our hearts. I guess somebody's coming in the side door here. <laughs> Give me a minute to close that. I must, I must not last it all the way. There we go. Every once in a while that wind will catch it, and if it's not last, it'll pull it open. So, but uh, let's take a moment to read it. It's only uh, seven verses long. <clears throat> so we'll read through it, and then we'll get into uh, each of these verses a little bit closer. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. 
The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? They were, uh, there were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back <clears throat> the captivity of his people. And Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. A wonderful, wonderful psalm that uh, is dealing here with uh, the uh, idea of man's tendency in his natural state to deny God, uh, to deny his existence. We're going to look into some of this because the psalmist uh, picks it apart. He kind of gives us some thoughts about why this takes place and why it is the tendency and the nature of the natural man to deny God and to deny his existence, even though it knows by evidence that he is there. It tends to have um, a desire to deny him. And, uh, but I want you to notice a couple of things here. This particular psalm is, uh, when you think of psalms or you think of songs and singing, uh, oftentimes you think, well, they're to be psalms of praise. And we're living in a day where uh, a lot of churches do what's called praise and worship. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm not afraid of either one of those two words. But we have so misconstrued, or they have so misconstrued, and really kind of robbed us of using those terms because they've so misused it, and they've made it seem like the only songs that ought ever to be sung are songs that only bring praise, and that's all they do. But I want you to understand that even in the times of David in the Old Testament, psalms were used for multiple things beyond just praise. Uh, they were used to teach and sing about doctrine, uh, which is an amazing thing. Uh, they would teach and encourage and exhort people uh, to live excuse me, to live according uh, to this doctrine. And uh, sometimes, as we notice in the Psalms, there's even a, a, a wailing of complaint in the psalm. And oftentimes you'll find the psalmist complaining to God. Uh, we saw it a few Sundays ago, uh, as he said, how long, four different times. How long, O Lord? How long? How long? Are you going to let this keep going on? How long? And it's, it's almost like he was complaining to God, but by the time you get to the end of uh, the psalm, uh, all of it, whether it's the doctrine, whether it's the admonition and encouragement of God's people to live according to His doctrine, whether it is the, the wail of complaint or whether it is the praise, the central focus of all of it is our faith being established in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the central focus of every psalm, that whether that's why I like some of the hymns that we sing. We like the old hymns. Uh, there's not a lot of good music being written anymore. Everybody's all about the praise, and there's no doctrine or there's no <coughs> no exhorting uh, of God's people. Uh, hold your place here for a minute and look with me in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter number 3. And uh, this is just a side note along the, the lines of this. <coughs> Excuse me. Colossians chapter number 3 uh, is a parallel passage to uh, Ephesians, uh, I think it's chapter 4, when it talks about 
uh, being filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And uh, the idea that we're to speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And uh, as we get to Colossians chapter number 3, look down with me, if you will, to uh, verse number 16. We find a similar passage that brings about the same characteristics. In Ephesians, Paul used the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians, he uses the phrase, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Now, I, I believe this very clearly, that since both of them bring about the exact same characteristics, that they're combined and, and that you can't separate the two. It's impossible to be filled with the Spirit if you don't let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. And it is impossible to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom if you're not filled with the Spirit. And so we, we, we cannot take and separate the two. But as we get to verse number 16, he says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all, in all wisdom. Notice this. Teaching, teaching, that's an interesting, interesting word, isn't it? And what? Teaching and what? Admonishing one another in what? Psalms and hymns and what? Spiritual songs. When we sing, it's not only praise. I think praise certainly can be it. But it is not only praise. It is to also teach us. And it is also to admonish us. And this is one of those psalms. In Psalm 14 uh, the psalmist really brings to bear some things that are hard sometimes for our, our egocentric, prideful condition to swallow. Uh, as we come to Psalm 13, he says, how, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 14, he says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And uh, here the fool is, is regarded as one that denies God. That doesn't mean... Uh, that he really believes this, it's just something that he says. Because it doesn't tell us that he believes in his heart. It tells us that he said in his heart, there is no God. There's, there's an important distinction to be made there, and you'll see why in just a moment. Because it is possible for us to say some things and not believe them. As we get to this point, he says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I want you to notice this, that it seems to me that the way this verse is written, that the man is a fool, and the foolishness of his heart, the natural condition of his heart, is why he denies that God exists. He's foolish by nature. He has an ignorance of some things, but he's, uh, as Second Peter says, uh, there are some that are willingly ignorant. And uh, so look with me a minute, and we're going to look at this verse also. To 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And look at verse number 14. A very familiar passage. Some of you may know it by heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14, Paul writes this, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are, what's the next word here? Foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural state of man before he is saved is a state of foolishness. 
It's a state of not understanding the things of God. And so they, they say in their heart that there is no God. And the psalmist refers to the one that does this as a fool. Now, let me ask you a question that I know when we read something like that, that we who are saved, that have trusted Christ as our Savior, we say, Amen, those unsaved people that believe that there is no God. But I want us to pause for a minute and ask this question. Is it possible for you and I to profess belief, and yet with our heart we deny His existence? I want you to keep that question in mind because we're going to look at some things here that may help to answer that for us. You say, well, how can I profess belief in God and yet deny His existence? Again, I'm not saying that we don't believe that He exists. But is it possible for us to deny that existence? Let's look as we get on down to verse number 2. The Bible says this, uh, 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 sorry, the rest of verse number 1. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable, abominable works. And by the way, it's because of the corrupt nature, the depravity of man, that we do the works that we do. We don't, we don't become a sinner because of the sin we commit. We sin because we are sinners by nature. And there certainly is the fact that there's a corruptness here. They are corrupt, and that corruptness has caused them to do something here. And that that is uh, referred to here as they have done abominable works. There's none that doeth good. Now, uh, the word none in the Hebrew means none. (laughs) I know that seems simple. Uh... There's none that doeth good. Is there anyone among us that can sit here and honestly, from the bottom of our hearts, say, I have never done anything contrary to what God's law was? Can any one of us sit here and say, I've never sinned? I've heard some people say that. I don't think they're sincere about it. Let me ask you this. How about since we've gotten saved? Is there any among us that can say, Since I got saved, I have never sinned since then. This is the plight that the psalmist is is putting and bringing to bear. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And here we have it reiterated again. Due to man's corrupt nature, the abominable works that are done by him are the result of that corrupt nature. I'm thankful when we get saved, we get a new nature that comes and indwells us. And this is the hope of the believer. This is why this psalm is not something for a, psalm, for a Christian to look at and wail in misery in the mire of despair and say, there's no hope for me. Because even though our flesh nature is that corrupt, I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus brings a new spirit into my life. And He did so in yours. The Holy Spirit of God that will indwell you. And He'll bring about a new attitude and a new change in your heart and in your life. But it doesn't mean that the old nature is completely gone. It still wars against us, doesn't it? Even the Apostle Paul, who I consider to be one of the great Christians, had this battle. In fact, he said he had the battle daily. 
there is, to these people who deny the existence of God, they, they do this because they don't want to have a moral absolute. They don't want to have a law that they have to obey. Every man does that which is right in their own eyes. I did a paper years ago back in the, the mid-80s in high school on the battle for the mind and the idea of uh, humanism. And in that time period, even back in the 80s, which has been a number of years ago now, uh, there, it was prevalent in our society that uh, we had situational ethics. We had uh, morals that were subject to interpretation by every person's moral center. And they were saying basically to themselves, um, here's what I think about the issue. Um, and every time that we, you ever used, or you ever heard the phrase fall into sin? <laughs> I don't know that a Christian ever falls into sin. In fact, I don't know that any person ever falls into sin. We make that choice. Uh, we choose to do it. And this is why I asked the question earlier, is it possible for us to profess belief in God and yet in our hearts we deny it because how can we how are we no different when we sin than an unsaved person when he sins denying God's existence and therefore avoiding the conscience trying to soothe the conscience trying to justify it and I'm not talking about necessarily maybe a a sin that we do once and, and it, it tears us up and we get it right and we never do it again. But what about those besetting sins? What about the ones that we continue to nurture? Uh, the worst sins in the world. The worst sins in the world. The worst sins I can find in Scripture are the ones that everybody else has. Have you ever noticed that? My sin is not that bad. If it was, I wouldn't do it. And I know that seems to be overly simplistic. But when we willingly sin, knowingly sin, and we do this, are we not denying the very existence of God? Because this is what the unsaved people do. They deny His existence so that they can have the folly of their nature, their natural condition. And they can do it to soothe their conscience, to sidestep that, that by the way, every person is born with it. These people that say, well, the conscience is taught. No, no. Every person has a moral conscience. Why is it that predominantly throughout the world, everybody believes in at least certain morals that you just don't cross the line? You don't murder somebody unjustly. And, and people pretty much across the board understand that. There used to be others that we held to pretty much across the board that men are now denying, saying that they're not morals, but it's because they're denying God and because they're wanting to live in their sin. Adultery, fornication, those things used to be uh, things that even society looked down on, even if they weren't Christian folks. There were morality laws even in the United States of America when it was first founded. But we don't have those today. Why? Because so many people are foolish in their nature. And they deny that there is a God. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't believe that there's a God, but they're going to deny it. They're going to try their hardest. You're going to see the result of this in a few moments here. In the, yeah, get down around verse number 5 and 6. You're going to see the result of this denying it. As we get to verse number 3, it says they're all gone aside. Oh, by the way, I, I, want to, I just want to read this 
statement. This was written by Charles Spurgeon a number of years ago regarding this idea of, of the, the sin that um, comes into the life of those that deny God. He says this, he says, Sins of omission uh, must abound where transgressions are full. Those who do the things which they ought not to have done are sure to leave undone those things which they ought to have done. What a picture of our race is this. Save only where grace reigns, there is none that doeth good. Humanity fallen and debased is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a dunghill without a jewel, and a hell without a bottom. Save for the grace of God. And that a great statement. If it weren't for what God did for us on Calvary, we would be lost in this depraved condition. We'd be following the flesh everywhere we went and having every sorrow of a conscience that could not be soothed. It's a miserable plight. In fact, the Bible refers to them here a little bit later in the psalm. It calls them workers of iniquity and how they're, they're slaves to this thing. They're, they're bound to it. Notice what he says in verse number 3. He says, they're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. God looks intently on the affairs of men. And one of the great reasons why people sin and they, they don't have too much trouble with it, even Christian people, is because we push to the back of our minds. It's not that we don't know it, but we don't think about it. We don't want to think about it. That God is always watching. God sees. Uh, we think our sin is done in secret. We think it's done in hidden things. And yet the psalmist said in verse number 2, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men. He's watching. Verse 3 talks about the fact that they're all gone aside. He's looked through the hearts of men. And I, that's the one thing about God that is so amazing to me is He doesn't even wait to see our sin until it's acted upon. But He sees the sin when it's just a seed thought in the heart and in the mind. He's the only one that can do that. I can't see your heart. You can't see my heart. But God can. And so He's ever-present. He's, he's, he does this because when He brings justice... Uh, he's, he brings righteous judgment, and he doesn't want to consume the righteous with the ungodly, so he doesn't punish blindly. He doesn't just arbitrarily come out and just uh, punish everybody altogether. He punishes the ungodly. And uh, I want you to notice this, that one of the reasons that we don't see the filthiness of our sin, look in verse number 3, they're all gone aside, they're all together become filthy, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. The reason that we do not see the filthiness of our own life more clearly is because we've become accustomed to sin. In the day that we live, uh, we become more and more accustomed to sin. There are things today that are acceptable inside the church house that when I was a kid, even unsaved people didn't do. What changed? There was a defiling of the heart, the natural course of man. There was an acceptance of sin, and we failed to see the filthiness and the sinfulness of it. Look with me in Second Peter chapter two for a minute. Second Peter chapter two. 
I sure want to get through this lesson today, but I'm not sure we're going to make it all the way through, but we'll see. Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 2. Let's look in verse number 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world, uh, upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow. Three different examples God gives of His justice coming. He talks about the fact, first of all, uh, that God did not spare the angels. Secondly, about the, the world before the flood and how wicked and depraved and vile it was. You know what was said of those that were before the flood? When, when, when God was proclaiming His condemnation on them, it was this. Every man did what? That which was right according to the Bible? No. According to God's law? No. Every man did that which was right in his what? In his own eyes. So he speaks of these three things as examples in Second Peter of his coming justice. And it's always righteous judgment. It's always righteous justice that comes. But I want you to notice this in verse 7. I love this. And delivered, what? Just Lot. Delivering. God does not punish. God does not, well, I can't say He doesn't punish. There are times He chastens uh, a group of people. But God does not bring judgment upon His righteous judgment. He's not destroy the godly with the wicked. He uses Lot as an illustration of this, but I want you to notice something here about this thing. Because this is something for even you and I as God's people to know. But it says, and delivered just Lot. And I want you to notice what's said of Lot. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in two things that are given here. In what? In seeing and hearing, <coughs> vexed his what kind of soul? His righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. He's considered to be a just man in verse number 7. He's considered to be a righteous man in the first part of verse number 8. He has a righteous soul and yet, even Lot had his righteous soul vexed by seeing and hearing the wickedness of those that were ungodly, those that were sinning without conscience from day to day. What happened to Lot? He grew accustomed to the sin that was so prevalent around him. May God deliver you and I from this. We're living in a world where sin has become so prevalent, so acceptable. And not even acceptable, but it is now even cheered and honored. We for far too long have prided ourselves, or I don't want to use the word prided ourselves, but we've, we've identified ourselves by being separated from the world. And we say, I'm not where the world is. But that's never our unit of measurement. 
Because the world, the Bible says, is waxing worse and worse. And if all I'm doing is being concerned with how far from the world I am, I'm going to keep going down that same path. They are just a distance away from them. But rather, I must take my life and lay it alongside of the Word of God. The world may do what it's going to do. But as a Christian, as a God's child, as someone who's trusted Him as their Savior... You and I don't look to the world for our guidance and say, this is where my morals need to be then because the world's over there. I want to be here. It is never the measure of our moral center. We come back to the Word of God for it. We say, but what does the Bible say? Why? Because our natural condition, it's foolish. It it tends to gravitate to those things. It tends to justify that sin. It tends to say it's not that bad. I remember years ago, we didn't have a TV growing up, but every once in a while we'd be over at my grandma's house and there'd be something on the television set we'd be allowed to watch. And I remember years ago, this I was probably a teenager at the time, uh, something was on the television set, I don't even remember what program it was, and they made some comment about uh, a homosexual. And they laughed at it on the computer, on the, on the television screen. They were, they were, they were mocking it and... People laughed along with it and said, yeah, that's a, that's a deviant lifestyle. We're going to mock it. We're going to laugh at it. We're going to... But because people were, were laughing at it, the Bible says only a fool will make a mock at sin. They were, they were, they were putting it out there. They were, they were beating that drum. And now we live in a day where look where we're at. It's no longer deviant behavior. In fact, it's not even acceptable behavior. It's now an honored and celebrated behavior. And we as God's people have sat quietly by and watched it happen. Why? Because they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. We like to pride ourselves on what we are not. I remember a saying years ago that we used to do, we'd say, I don't drink, smoke, chew, or run with those that do. Uh, little songs we used to sing on the Sunday school bus, smoking, drinking, fist fights, and dirty talking. They all make us walk the dirty walk and don't, no, no, don't do that. And we used to pride ourselves. In fact, we still do. We identify ourselves by what we're not. Folks, that's not enough. We, sh- we should not identify by what we are not. We should identify by what we are. We should identify by what the Word of God says. And by the grace of God, I want to be something more than this fool that says in his heart, there is no God. I've never met a man yet that, after lengthy discussion, doesn't at least admit that God very possibly exists, even though they claim to be an atheist. Lot's described as a righteous man. He's described as a man who has a righteous soul, and yet he was vexed. Why? Because he could see and hear every day the sinfulness of Sodom, and that sin became less sinful. I will say this, it should cause you and I to be all the more grateful the work that grace has done in our lives. I am thankful for my salvation. I'm thankful I don't have to go to hell anymore. And boy, that's enough to rejoice in and of itself. But aren't we glad for the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in this day, this side of heaven? 
in our lives day by day, when we understand our natural tendency, and yet He has put a new spirit inside of us, He's given us a new heart and a new mind. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. She may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm thankful that by the grace of God, I have something now to combat that old carnal nature. I have something now that allows me to at least see that there could be some good come out of this life. Not just evil only. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll probably end here and pick up next week. And we've probably only made it about halfway through, but we'll finish next week on it. It's a small psalm, but there's a lot of meat in it. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, if you will. Second Corinthians chapter number 5, verse number 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Aren't you glad of that? Old things are passed away. Behold, most things become new. No? Some things become new. A lot of things become new. What does your King James Bible say? All. Things become new. Isn't that wonderful? You read the first part of this psalm, and it's easy for a Christian to say, Woe is me, but for the grace of God. We're going to see a little bit more of that as we finish the psalm out next week. Uh, Boy, what a wonderful prayer said at the very end of it. I love it. I'm thankful that the psalmist, I know the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these things, but he's, he's so transparent about things, isn't he?